This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Uh, We're kind of coming out of order a little bit today. Um, You know, with everything that happened last week, uh, my team and I talked and we talked about me doing a solo episode. And it's something that I had been thinking about for a while. But I also started to think about that I wanted to have a dialogue. And I thought, who is the person that I most love having dialogue with when times are tough? And that is my friend, Mary Catherine Hamm, who was one of our first guests on the Resilient Life podcast. And we had an incredible conversation about her life. But I'm bringing her back today because I think she provides such valuable insight um, as a commentator, someone who's lived her life in front of the screen, talking about the issues that afflict us as a nation, as as a world. And, um, and so I bring her on today because I wanna talk about this, really what I wanted to talk about was unity. So Mary Catherine, you know, I'd love to, I don't wanna just dive right in with what is unity, but I've seen a lot of these calls for unity. I have been someone who has been calling for unity. I have posted about how we need to come together as a country um, and, and figure out the challenges in front of us. But then I also saw things about how empty the word unity can be when there's nothing behind them, behind that word. And so I'd love to get your your take on, you know, I don't want to just start with, what do you think about everything that's happening? What do you think of, what do you think about where we are today? And then the idea of how we put the pieces back together. I know that's a big question to start everything off, but I feel like we got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, we do. And I, to, to be fair and sitting in front of me, I have a, a notes application note where I've just written title things I have thought about this week. And it's just a, a very long list of the the issues that are inherent in everything we've experienced in the last week. And as, as many of us have experienced over the last year, things seem to be going and moving faster in the news cycle than, and there's more volume of news at all times, it feels like. And this is one of those weeks where I'm like, well, can I, can I just deal with a violent uprising at the Capitol? Uh, and then can I just deal with impeachment? And can I just deal with First Amendment issues? And the answer is no, I, I have to think about all of them. So understanding that this is complicated and that a lot of people are having a lot of thoughts about a lot of issues, um, I would like to stipulate that I don't know the right path to unity, um, but I think it's dangerous to think of calls for unity and attempts at it as a cop-out to any of these other issues. Do you just see, see what I'm saying? I don't wanna get in a situation where my attempts to build bridges are considered problematic in and of themselves because it ignores these other problems. I think we, I think we can do both, but I do not have all the answers. Um, and it, I would also like to acknowledge that as a political commentator for the past, 15, 20 years, I have to look at myself and see, and my career and see what part do I have in the creation of the situation we're in now and the, and the difficulty of finding paths back from it. Um, Cause it's a big deal. What we're going through is a, is a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, and one, one of my friends who's been a longtime political person was asked by a couple of her non-political friends right before the election, how do you do it? How do you think about this stuff all the time? How do you not get super jaded um, or lose all your friends or, or you know, have these conversations? And she said, um, I keep one thing front of mind and it's this, which I would like to put forth at the beginning of this podcast. I could be wrong. 
There you go. Yeah. I could be wrong. Um, and that is a lot of the recipe for having a conversation about any of this. Um, but man, it was a big week. It's been a week. Yeah. And so it's funny because I started to think about this, you know, when everything happened last week, I like, I would assume, and again, I would assume most Americans were appalled. I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, I actually walked into my bedroom. My husband said, you got to get in here. And I'm just watching literally the, the Capitol being stormed. And my mouth was wide open. I just couldn't believe the images that I was seeing. And, you know, I went to bed that night just so upset at the state of where we were as a nation. And I said to my husband, like, I feel like I have to say something. And I said, and I, I don't know what to say. And, and he said, you know what? I think you should go to bed and not say anything right now. And when I say, say something, I was, I wanted to post something to social media and he right. said, you should go to bed and not say anything right now. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. And I woke up the next morning and I just started writing and I put together, you know, this little passage and, you know, it was really where. I am as a person. It's how I've always felt. It was, it was this idea that like, I'm never going to not have a conversation with you based off your opinions. And, um, I will always try to understand your differences, our differences. I may not always agree with your side of things, but I will always try to understand it. And, you know, and I ended it with, I will always choose unity over division. And then literally within the next 24 hours, it kind of became that unity was this like cop out, like stop the calls for unity. What is unity going to do at this point? And I had to really reflect on this idea of like, well, what is unity? You know? And I think that the reason that word seems so empty right now is because it's not being backed up by action. And so I started to think collectively like, well, when I talk about unity, what, what do I mean? What do I mean as an individual? And I started to really look at the community that we've created through the Travis Manning Foundation. And I was having a conversation with some of the people that we work with. And I said, you know, isn't it interesting that we as an organization have pulled together people from all different backgrounds, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different, um, ethnic groups. I mean, every, in the word of diversity, every sense of diversity that in that word, and we've pulled them together to collectively come together and do something uh, and accomplish a common mission. And, you know, started to think about, well, what does that mean? How did we do that? And I think it was because they're invariably like, it's just about good, right? Like what we do at TMF is just about goodness we serve others and we do it really with the backdrop of the men and women who have given their lives for our freedoms that we hold so dear, right? Like that's always in the back of our minds in everything that we do. And, you know, there's this idea that it can be like trite, like, oh, you know, we honor the fallen and we call for unity. And and it's like, are those, are those empty words that people don't fully understand? Um, maybe not understand, but, um, but I, I, I think that part of the issue, and of course the issue at hand is the first and foremost, the prosecutable crimes, the eminently prosecutable crimes that happened and the people should be held accountable for those because I'm interested when it comes to political movements or just advocacy on, on policy and politics, I am interested in finding people with whom I I can have conversations in those movements and not assume that they are out to get me and that they don't assume that I'm out to get them, right? That's sort of the basis of having polity and and society. Um, And that requires very loudly saying that I would like the people punished who do things that are beyond that, right? So that's that's the first part. Uh, And I think in politics, Right now, we have a real, we have real fear on both sides that the other side is out to get 
the op- the adversary, right? That we're not just Americans approaching a problem in a different way, but that you're looking to hurt me and this guy's looking to hurt me and that both sides feel that way. Um, and unfortunately, there are actors among those, uh, as we saw very, very clearly this week, who are eager to be the stereotype of the person looking to hurt the other side. Mm-hmm. And so that understandably makes people more scared, more emotional, uh, more worried about making friendships with people who disagree with them. And I think that one thing during 2020 and recent years in social media in general, but 2020 in particular, that we lost is our other outlets to community. The thing we have is social media and the thing that too often dominates social media is this style of winner take all politics. And when that is what we are immersed in, it becomes harder and harder to recognize the community that we can have with other people. And that is, again, as I said, none of this is to excuse anybody's behavior, but this is the, this is the stew that we have all been sitting in for this very strange year. And I think it has, I think, I think the attempt to find community, first of all, became harder much, much harder this year because you can't go out and see people in the way that you used to and many of your outlets are gone. But that has led some people to say that the search for community is anathema to unity, that you must engage in this kind of politics or this kind of discussion or else you are abandoning your morals. And it's like, you must look for other outlets other than politics or else I think, I think, to my mind, this is the, the bad road you go down. Yeah. What do you think the, how big of a role do you think that the public cons- public's consumption of social media has played in where we are today in the division that exists? I, I have to tell you, you know, I posted, um, a couple of days ago, I posted a picture of uh, Officer Brian Sicknick, um, who was killed um, last week. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I saw the video last night, which made it a thousand times worse to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I posted a video or a picture just saying this is Officer Brian Sicknick, who gave his life. Um, while serving his country, which he did as a police officer with the Capitol Police. And and I said, you know, let's remember him. And that was it. And the comments that flooded my feed in response to that, I was actually blown away by the response. Because if I had posted, this is Captain John Doe, who lost his life in Afghanistan. I would have nothing but positive, positivity, just true remembrance of him. It was unbelievable to me that there was a side to this officer who had just lost his life. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. And I realized that, you know, it was happening because it was, it was on social media, but I feel like people have become such keyboard warriors and what they're doing and the the damage that they're causing is it's scary. Yeah. And when I also want to say beyond officer Sicknick, uh, the stories coming out about individual heroism uh, among Capitol police and others who were up there. um, I it's fairly clear to me that there will, there will be a price to pay beyond the initial day, which is enough price in and of itself. But um, among leadership for the posture that Capitol Hill police were in that day, which was for a joint session of Congress, which is their Super Bowl, not clearly not big enough, right? So that that will we will find out more through investigations, but I think that much is clear. But the individual acts of someone like Eugene, I believe his name is Eugene Goodman, um, an officer oh, yeah. who by himself lured a group of people looking to storm the Senate and do, we don't know what, some of them had zip ties, some of them were in tactical gear, 
Uh, and he led a, a giant crowd of them away from the Senate so that others could lock that door and get them uh, to safety. So um, I think there's a little bit of cultural whiplash in that over the summer, and this is what, <laughs> that's what I mean about the news coming fast and hard and people deciding what you're allowed to talk about and what you shouldn't talk about in order to be a good person, over the summer, discussing the heroism of an individual police officer would have been considered bad form. I think it's fair to say that, uh, even though there is always heroism and there is always an argument to be made that there's these institutions have problems, but many people inside them are very good, right? Whether it's the military or whether it's uh, police. And now you're in a situation where the political teams in a, in a real gross sense just flipped and the script became for many on the left, look at these folks doing amazing things and leading staffers to safety. And then much of the back of the blue crowd from over the summer is singing a different tune now, right? And it's all dependent on what your political persuasion is and what's happening at that moment. And I think the, the clearest expression of that, which I found quite surprising, was the video of an, an officer being attacked by a crowd with an American flag on a flagpole. I mean, I there is no clearer, more disgusting expression of that. Um, and so, you know, like I said, when when your when your assessments of these things and who's a hero and what institutions we trust and all that is tied to your political persuasion, you get this violent flip flopping not to use like a, a sort of a flippant term for it, but you, you do see everybody switch roles all of a sudden and it's disconcerting and it understandably makes people look around and be like, okay, do you really care about the things that you say you care about? Well, what I start to think about honestly is like, you start to think like that you may feel like the problems we're seeing in our country are too big for you to play any role in solving. I mean, I feel that way right now. Like, what, what do I do as an individual that's disgusted by what happened, that's blown away by the level that people would take it to? And, and then you start to feel deflated almost. Like, yeah. okay, you know, I can sit here and I can talk to you. I can put a post up about unity and then think, gosh, what a, what a blanket post. What does that mean? But- you know, how do you take this and turn it into action as a person like me, who's, who's sitting here feeling, feeling deflated, feeling like I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about what I can do to make my community better. You know, where, where do the political commentators that are sitting behind the screen each and every night, how do they start to play a role in helping to heal? as opposed to just sharing their side of things. You know, right. I think that's I think that's a little bit of where we are, right? Yeah, I think from from my point of view and doing my job, uh one of the things one of the things we have is a crisis of trust where people do not know who to go to for facts, how to discern what is real and what is not. And the very, the very worst iterations of that is something like QAnon, where they're like, well, I don't believe you about anything else. And therefore this is happening. This, you know, insane conspiracy theory. Um, many of, many of whose adherents were at the front of this, of the battle lines, uh, that formed at the Capitol. And so part of it is that I have to check myself, uh, be honest about what I'm saying and in my assessment of people. This requires that, um, for instance, I recognize uh, when researching the people who are in front of this thing that no, um, my eyes and my research tell me that this was not an event overwhelmed by Antifa infiltrators, which is something that some people will tell themselves to make them feel better, to have an out on this kind of thing, if it is their preferred side, just as over the summer, I was having my, I, I refused to have my intelligence insulted by being told that these are 
largely white nationalist groups in Portland setting things on fire like that. I'm sorry, that is not the case. Uh, and the police records show that's not the case. Um, and it doesn't mean that there aren't various cross pollinations of these, these groups, but you have to, I think, be clear eyed about what you're seeing, whether it's your side, quote unquote, or the other side, quote unquote. Right. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think, and th this in and of itself has sort of uh, been framed as a cop-out and it absolutely is not. I will go down with this ship. Condemnation of political violence on both sides is a civic virtue and we should all cultivate it. Like it's not cute when it's convenient to your side. It's bad. It is not something we should encourage or romanticize. I think is something that some people do. Um, it, it's really, really ugly. And we saw just how ugly it gets um, when unfortunately some leaders encourage it uh, or at least turn a blind eye to it. But I think encourage is fair enough um, description. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think, I think rooting for people to be held accountable like uh, diminishes the possibility this happens again in the future. So that's a big part of it. But as an individual, I mean, one of the things that I try to do that is part of my part of trying to live a good, healthy civic life is to maintain my friendships with a bunch of people who think a bunch of different things. Yeah. And sometimes that means not expressing every single thought I have on social media at every single moment. I think prudence is sometimes good. Um, and it's one of the reasons I don't spend as much time on Twitter as I used to, because I don't think it's that healthy for me or for what I'm attempting to do. Um, now, sometimes you have to speak out and I understand that you don't want to be silent and silent slash possibly seen as complicit. Uh, but yeah, I think searching out those, your real life relationships uh, and the ability to cross bridges and, and build bridges in your own life. Like I tell my, I, I've, taught a class on free speech at Georgetown this past semester. It is hard, slow work doing that kind of thing. Um, but it's also deeply rewarding and you have enough people in your life to test you that you don't end up embracing a conspiracy theory that might lead you to try to topple the seat of the U S government violently. There's this, yeah. there's guardrails in your life. Well, I think you said it. You're like real relationships, right? I think we've become the society where we're base, you know, we're basing our our worth off of things that aren't real. And so it's it's going back to these real relationships, having real conversations, um, civil conversations, but then it's also like what comes next in building these bridges to because listen. A majority of our country believes one thing. A majority of our country believes the other thing as it, as it pertains to political beliefs, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, um, but how, when you're at this fever pitch as a country, how do you get back to, how do you get back to the basics? You know, and that's really what I'm trying to decipher. Like how, you know, my day goes on just as it went on um, yesterday and the day before and tomorrow, like nothing, nothing changes in my world other than I feel like, how can I do more to be a part of the solution? And that's one of the things I've really been struggling with. How can I be a part of the solution? And I can't think that I'm the only one that doesn't feel that way. That's not sitting here saying, what can we do to be a part of the solution? Because I inherently think that 99% of this country wants to work together, but all we're hearing is the 1%. Yeah. Um, and so how do we get our, our microphones loud enough that, so that people can understand that we do just want to work together? And what does that look like? And I realize I'm throwing out these very like large um, questions that, that, Again, I'm not asking you to have answers to them, but um, 
it's just more some of the stuff that's been running through my head the past week. You know? Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, so if you, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to fall into making false equivalencies or exact equivalencies or anything like that. But if you look at the two large movements of the past year, which would be sort of the, the BLM, um, which adjacent to that are these, um, urban riots and, and ransacking sacking of businesses that happened in various American cities all through the summer. Um, but is the protest group part of it, um, is asking for police reform is, uh, talking about police accountability, things that I have been talking about for years that I used to, uh, argue with O'Reilly about, um, because he was a bit more of a populist and less of a libertarian than I was. And I would have these long arguments with him about, um, policing and what that looks like and what people's rights are. And I've, I've had conversations with many on the right where they think I'm too left on this for, for many, many years. Um, and then you have the pro-Trump movement uh, and ad adjacent and a part of it is this group that did this horrible thing at the Capitol, right? Um, I think the tendency on both sides is to see only the bad actors. Right. And that doesn't mean that you have seeing the good actors does not mean that you have to turn a blind eye to the fact that the bad stuff happened. It did. It super did. Um, it's not fake. You may be mad at people uh, for excusing it. There's plenty of people that I know that I'm like, what are, why are we making excuses for this right now? I can see in front of my eyes what's happening. Right. Um, but seeing I never want to write off an entire American protest movement of free Americans because of the bad behavior of some of them. I want to punish the bad behavior of those people in a legal and, uh, you know, American way where we ob observe their civil rights. But the, the real concerns that people have, I want to engage with those. Um, and I want to talk about them and, sometimes I'm going to think that they're not as important as those people who are concerned about them do. But I, I just, I think that part of this is recognizing that the other side, even when parts of it are very doing very bad things, they are not necessarily all your enemy, because if we think they're all our enemy, then we're just split right down the middle and it leads to, to very bad things. Yeah. So how, how do you take the first step though? Like, how do you take the first step as somebody who says, okay, I'm, I'm going to commit whether I'm on this side or that side, I'm going to commit to not looking at the other side as all my enemies, right? What do I do next? Well, in my case, I, I would say, um, like I don't purge people from my friends lists, for instance. Um, and this is uh, one of the things I actually appreciate about Facebook is that in my life, um, Facebook becomes an extreme, it's not a silo. It's not an ideological silo. It comes, it became a very, very intellectually and racially diverse place because of where I grew up and the work that I do. I have both working class uh, democratic voters and professional activist class democratic people. And then I have on the other side, working class Republican voters and activist class Republican uh, leaders all in there. And so I, I, I want to keep them in there. And there are a few people in there who have said some things that I'm like, mm, maybe let's mute that up for 30 days or, you know, whatever, if it gets to a pitching point right. and I'm like, you know, we're not having that conversation right at this second, but I, I, I don't look for reasons to get rid of people from my sphere. Now, there are reasons that are real, like that's like active racism and threats on the government and real actual violent rhetoric that I would be like, okay, what? but done. I want to, I want to set those boundaries far out so that I can have a lot of discussion in between. Um, because I do think that the less practiced you are at having a conversation with other people and being exposed to other people's beliefs, the less good you're going to be at it. I love that. Yeah. And I, I just don't like a lot of people think there's a moral imperative that you must purge your groups of anyone who 
is adjacent or possibly right of center, or in the other case, if you're on the other side, left of center and might be, might've attended a Black Lives Matter rally. Like, well, don't purge those people from your circle. You don't even have to talk about the actual thing, but if you are, a, if you are exposed to their point of view, that's part of the battle. Like that's part, that's part of being a citizen. Yeah, and I, I think that, so you talk about not purging and then we get into this idea, like you taught at Georgetown last semester, you taught a course on free speech. And, and here we are today with the, the leader of the free world has just had his free speech taken away. Well, he had his platform taken away on okay. one technology, right? So there are people who argue, okay, and Twitter argues, he is a unique threat in his um, in the way that he talked leading up to this, in the way that it undoubtedly stoked the fire, uh, whether it meets the legal definition for incitement, which it does not, uh, according to many legal scholars. The bar for incitement is extremely high, legally, criminally, it's extremely high, on purpose so that we can say a lot of stupid things, all of us, without being prosecuted. So, and the the president of the United States included. Twitter says, okay, he he is a unique threat and we therefore must suspend him. Uh, now, I didn't love that they suspended him for the possibility of future incitement because then, okay, well, what's the standard for me? You could You could decide that I might possibly future incite someone. Um, I didn't really have an issue, by the way, with the timeout that they gave him. I think he probably, he warranted many of those uh, over the years, right? Uh, but the suspension and the disappearance of the uh, entire Twitter account, I, I don't think are great ideas, partly because that's arguably part of the US archives, that whole, as much as we don't want it to be, <laughs> That is, yeah. that is part of living history and something that people should be able to refer back to. Um, so I hope they restore at least the record of it in some way. Now, it is not a First Amendment issue in that the government is not the one doing this to him, right? But my argument, and again, I'm arguing against uh, my own desires because I, like you, find this to be one of my least favorite things. The, the, the President's Twitter account, one of my least favorite things. Um, but, uh, you know, I find, I do find myself in the company of the likes of Angela Merkel, <laughs> who has spoken out another world leader who said, ah, do we want to ban world leaders from using Twitter, uh, which is sort of, you know, this public square that we have now, even though it belongs to a, a private company and the ACLU who has some questions about what this leads to as well. And that's the real question. Like I'm, <laughs> I compared it the other day to, ideologically I'm against banning smoking in restaurants, but in practice, I kind of enjoy it. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like when, it, when there's nobody smoking in my restaurant, like I, that's a much more enjoyable experience than it was in the nineties, even though I was like, I don't know, Liberty requires that they can do this and that. Right. So this is kind of like that where I'm kind of enjoying the absence of this, but do I think it leads somewhere good yeah. for speech in the long run, which is more important than whether my waffle house is full of smoke. Um, for speech in the long run. And, th and that's where I think a lot of the technology companies banding together to get rid of a bunch of people in a bunch of areas who are right of center. Um, and some of them probably genuinely bad actors, right? Some of them demonstrably so uh, in their post threatening violence and all sorts of things. It's been passed along to Secret Service, which has its hands full right now um, and federal law enforcement. Uh, but banding together in that way sort of undercuts the idea that Trump is this unique threat. Like he's a unique threat, but we're also going to take all of you out too. And, you know, I do, I, I am surprised that so many think that it will never come for speech. They like, like, this is not. And again, I would, I wouldn't have a problem really if the standard were, you're a, a world leader or, or someone who says these violent, uh, potentially violent or bad things. And so we take you out, except like Khomeini's still on Twitter and the entire 
propaganda arm of the um, Chinese government is still on Twitter, like sort of openly bragging about ethnic right. cleansing. Supreme and, on Twitter, but yeah. I, yeah. I, I've heard a couple of people say that. Yeah. So like, I do think the, the even handedness of the regulation is important um, in order to engender trust, which is the thing that we don't have, which is the, the root of the whole problem, I think. But um, so, yeah, I, I do think this can potentially lead very bad places um, because what becomes uniquely threatening, well, what's the next thing that's uniquely threatening? Yeah. Is it, is it me? I don't know. Many would say, no, it's not you, but that, uh, we'll see. Like there, there are slippery slopes. They exist. Sure. And, and again, you say it all gets back to, to trust. And so, you know, how, how do we as a country learn to trust again? Right. So, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion that we shouldn't be looking for our politicians to fix our problems. And I think that if all of us opened our eyes to see that truth as well, we would be a lot better off. I mean, we're, we're looking to a very small group of people to solve all the problems uh, that afflict us as a country. And yeah. it's not working, right? And so, you know, it's a little bit of this, like the hard work starts at home. You know, it's having those conversations, keeping those real life conversations with your friends, uh, widening your aperture to have conversations with people that think differently than you. But what role do you think that our, and what responsibility, not just role, but what responsibility do you think that our politicians today have in helping to, to heal this country? Because right now we need healing. You know, we need healing in a big way. And I know that, again, maybe I'm going to take some heat for using that word healing, but like we do. Like, no, that, I mean, that's what people want, even if they sort of like go about it. And uh, uh, I, I don't think a lot of people are looking for that. And well, unfortunately, I think a missed opportunity was, uh, I don't know, taking the vote to approve the Electoral College with no objections the other night. That would have been one way to come together and say, you will not stop us from doing the job that we're doing. And the, the, to me, the, the overriding concern is that we are not stopped by a crowd of, of rioters from doing the people's business, right? This is the people's business. I appreciate, by the way, that under uh, quite a bit of physical threat, um, Mike Pence did do the, the right thing and that they all got back in there and seemed, I will say, seemed all determined to get back in there and do the thing. Um, and unfortunately had to be escorted under armed guard uh, to get back in there and do the thing. Um, so I think that would have been a show of unity that would have been helpful. Uh, and, but again, you have a trust problem. There are people who genuinely think the election was stolen. And they think that a show of unity in approving the Electoral College without objection uh, would be a capitulation to those trying to end the Republic. When in fact, I think it's the other way around. The people trying to stop this vote um, are the ones who need to be refuted. Uh, but I mean, that gets into a lot of other sticky political issues. So I found this, I found this, um, uh, read something recently and I thought it was so good and actually saw this before everything that took place last week, but I, but grabbed it again. Have you ever heard of the moral foundations theory? Mm -mm. So I have not. Okay. So basically, all right. I don't know like the, the full theory, but what I wrote down, basically it's that liberal, conservative ideologies have their roots um, in a moral values of like careness, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty, where liberals tend to place more emphasis on care, fairness, and liberties. Liberty. I want to hear what your thoughts on this. So liberals tend to place more emphasis on care, fairness, and liberty, 
and conservatives on loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Specifics aside, what's helpful is that I can see that all six of these things are good things, right? I, I line up with all six of those things. So people that disagree with me aren't necessarily motivated by evil or a desire to screw up our country or our community, right? They're just acting in accordance with a different value, which I can still agree is a good value. So if you can better understand the values someone is acting from, you can have a much more productive and respectful conversation with them. I've never actually heard it kind of framed out in that way. And, and I loved it. And I actually, I agree with it. I think that, um, I think that most conservatives would say that loyalty, authority, and sanctity are very important values to them. And that liberals would say that liberty, fairness, and care are, are very important values to them. What I think is that so hard right now is that people can't get past these labels and, yeah. and what labels us. And, you know, frankly, I've seen people, a lot of people saying, I'm no longer a Republican or I'm no longer a Democrat, but they're no longer a Democrat, they're becoming a Republican or they're no longer a Republican and they're becoming a Democrat. And they're just jumping to a new label. And so um, I prefer to think of people without labels. And well, yeah, and I, I think this is one of those things too that can that can sound trite, but it's actually the stuff of life, which is I tell my students, um, you know, I know it's it's highly likely that most of my students are far more liberal than I am, right? I'm a center right commentator. But we are all hybrids. There's almost no one in daily life who is the cartoon of the person you think is the other side. Now, as I said earlier, there seem to be a lot more people just ready to live up to those stereotypes, right? That we're that we're seeing and those are the people that are going to get a ton of attention and again be punished for the things that they did. Uh because that will prevent it from happening in the future. That's how deterrence works. Um, but we're all hybrids, uh, which means, and, I, and this is one of the things where I think, I don't love the conversation about privilege when it leads to someone saying your privilege means you need to shut up. But we can look at the world and say, I come from a different place, I grew up differently. I had an easier time with certain things and maybe a harder time with certain things than another person. And when that starts a conversation, like you can find those, you can a understand that someone else has a different view for these reasons, B that they're coming at it from a very good place and a place where they've seen hardships that maybe you haven't and see that their conclusions are therefore different about how, about how you deal with American society. Um, that is a road worth walking. Uh, the one that I think too often we we tend to go, well, you don't understand me and therefore you're ignorant and wrong and bad. Well, we haven't taken the time to try to understand yet. Like they, we, we're putting the cart before the horse. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, look, there are no good answers. There are no super easy answers to any of this. And I, um, having been in this business for a long time, it has changed the ground has changed seismically under my feet while I've been doing this job and I attempt to be who I am to assess facts as I see them to resist uh the urge to fall in with the crowd uh because uh I want to offer critical thinking I want to offer different ways of thinking about things if possible. Uh, and that's what I love about you. I mean, honestly, you know, I could, if I were to preface this with, I'm bringing on a center right political commentator to talk <laughs> about what happened last week, you would probably think before we started talking that we'd be having a much different conversation. Right. And I knew that that's not the conversation that we were going to have. And so, because I know that you look at things so objectively and you see things from all different sides. Um, 
you know what I should oh I should I have not gotten into this yet but I have had this thought a lot of people are comparing this and we don't have to get into a values discussion about this but saying it's a it's a sort of a 9-11 in that it's like a a sparking incident that changes the way our country looks at itself and large parts of its machinery or the way we do business uh for the foreseeable future I think some of that may indeed be true I think it's worth thinking about the ways in which we reacted to 9-11 that worked out and the ways we reacted to 9-11 that did not, right? There's some civil liberties stuff. There were people over overstepped. And I think in, in intervening years, uh, many people have changed their minds about those things. And then in the, in the heat of this moment, I do think the threat to future gatherings of truly peaceful people engaging in their right to assemble uh, could be large. I mean, there could be a real shift in how people are allowed to gather in the United States Capitol. Now in the near term, that makes a lot of sense, right? But as we move forward, I do think we need to be careful about the kind of reforms that we might adopt in light of all of this. because it's an important moment and it's important not to have the same failures again, but sometimes, uh, as my husband is uh, fond of saying, the pendulum swings too far. Yeah. And so you gotta, you gotta watch out for that. And as a, as a speech enthusiast, and as somebody who, by the way, this is the reason that I'm concerned about, well, there's many reasons I'm concerned, but one of the reasons I'm concerned about the technology crackdown is that the idea that you should chase a bunch of people into expressing their views, not in the new public square that we have, which is largely technological. If you take out their ability to do that, and I'm talking about just, I'm not talking about people who are inciting or doing actionable things. And you send them to sort of a gray market political underground that's more encrypted and more off the grid I don't see that getting us to a less extreme position. Like right. I, I think that that is a way to make people feel more marginalized and for uh, dirty laundry not to be aired. And for, by the way, law enforcement not to have access to the various postings that would tell them what people are up to. Gotcha. Uh, so I worry about that. You know, kind of sending an entire ideology underground is not a recipe for good things for that. No, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I think that's how that uh, QAnon kind of started in these underground. Yeah. Dark. Well, and you, if you send a lot of people there, they're going to reinforce each other and that will be the predominant view. And, uh, you know, things, things go downhill from there. So as much as this is the thing about speech, as much as messy speech in the open is uncomfortable and can be gross sometimes, like truly disgusting. The messy stuff underground, I think has even worse effects. Yeah. So. So final- why the ACLU is with me on one thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, So final thoughts on where we go from here. You know, if you, people are listening to you right now and they're sitting there thinking, well, what can I do? Outside you've given some, you've given some insight into some, you know, um, into some basic things, but, and, and, and it could be basic cause I think it all, it actually all starts with the basics, but, but where do we go from here and where does the, where does the average human who just wants to move forward, just wants to play a part in the healing of our nation, um, what's their next step? I think that, so from my point of view, I was, I was, I've been going through all week, like, you know, what does this mean to me and for my work and for what I do and for living a meaningful life? Um, and I think one of the things that strikes me is, look, I've, I'm center right, but libertarian, especially on police issues. And I'm, uh, and 
I've worked at CNN and I've worked at Fox and there's all these, you know, I'm from the South. I'm a white woman. Like there's any number of reasons that any number of my followers or friends can find the cultural marker that says to them, I got to hate her. I got to hate her. I got to hate her because she's at CNN. I got to hate her because she used to be at Fox. I got to hate her because she's conservative. Nope. I got to hate her from the other side. I got to hate her because she doesn't back police on this and that. Right. Um, but that finding those things in the, in the aggregate is sort of what we've done as a country. We're finding the reason before you know the person that you can disqualify that person. Now, there are some people who are worthy of disqualification, right? We all know toxic people. We all know truly off the rails people and perhaps have been introduced to new ones who've been created in the past year, right? There's, there's people like that. But in general, your neighbors aren't those people. Um, and I would say that when you find one of those things that tells you, oh, I'm supposed to dislike this person, um, maybe search for another thing. That's the reason you could like them. I know it sounds very Mr. Rogers, but that's what relationships are. Uh, and that's what I do every time I go into uh, a college classroom is I, I often go into a group of people who know every single one of the reasons they should hate me. And we walk out at the end of class or at the end of a week or the end of a semester with them saying, Oh, I, I kind of enjoyed this. I didn't, I didn't expect to enjoy that conversation. And I think we all can strive for that uh, while also condemning true outliers and true bad behavior. Because redemption is possible and like we sort of are in imposing uh, cultural damnation on whoever comes across our path sort of preemptively too often, I think. Um, and we can learn from each other more and we can uh, create those relationships when we just have conversations and they don't have to be about politics. They can be about other things that we care about. That's one of the beautiful things about sports. And one of the reasons I was glad that football happened during coronavirus, because people need a thing that cuts across these political tribal lines and creates different tribes like <laughs> the Browns, right? Um, we need those things in our lives to unite us on different fronts that are much healthier often than the one in which I chose to work. <laughs> Yeah. Well, again, you're right. And it's like back to the basics and, and let's be honest. Well, I was going to say, let's be honest. How much do you talk politics in your day-to-day -day world? You, you do a lot because that's what you do, but like most people are not sitting around talking politics, right? Yeah. So when it gets to this fever pitch, we've got a problem. And I, I, I say like, you know, it's, serving where you can, like playing this role where you can, that starts within your home and in your local community. And it's, it's very basic, but it's, it's these things that lead to this big word of unity, because if you are united within your home, you're united within your neighborhood, you're united within your community, that's where real change can happen, positive change, healing can come, and we can really start to take a turn um, from this ugliness that exists right now. And it's just ugly. And it, it, it truly is. And it's, and it's ugly in part because they're, they're, well, first of all, there's a lot of people who believe various things that I don't believe, and they're very upset about those things. There's also true injustices in this country that make people very angry for very, very good reason. Um, but I would argue that the way in which we communicate often eliminates possible teammates in those fights by assuming, well, you don't care about this injustice and you don't care about that injustice. When we don't, we don't actually know that that's the case 
often. And we're, we're cutting ourselves off from ability to team up and you sort of practice what you preach in your local community. And I, I actually don't as much as I should, which is there's a lot more ways in which your local leaders and, uh, and politics can change your life and directly affect you than these people who are in Washington. And it's an important thing to be plugged into. I think, especially now people see that with their, their kids' school policy at this point. Uh, here we are a year past my kids being out of school, right? This is, these are the things that touch your life on a daily basis and places where team ups that you didn't expect existed. If you were looking at it from a national political lens. Yeah. It all starts within your local communities. I say that all the time, each and every day, truly believe it. And, um, you know, I think we, we really have to get back to that place. Um, Mary Catherine, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I thought it was important again, you know, in wanting to do like a solo episode, just come on and start talking. And I thought, you know, I'd really rather have a dialogue with someone. So I shot you a text and graciously said, sure, let's do it. And, um, and I think these thoughts are important. I think your voice is important right now. And I hope that as we move forward, um, we get to hear more of your voice because I think it's one that people need to hear. And, um, and you're coming at things as, um, the way you come at things is, is very refreshing because you do have an opinion and that's why, uh, that can make people mad sometimes, but your opinions are always very informed and I'm never going to assume I know what you're thinking just because that's the way uh, your political ideology may line up because you do your research and you really look for, um, you really look for to base your opinions based on like fact. I appreciate it. And I, um, I think it can often feel for anyone expressing an opinion or, um, or trying to connect with other people. It can often feel that you're bombarded with, no, you're doing it wrong. No, you're doing it wrong. No, you're doing it wrong. I get this all the time. As I joke, my, my hate mail is so diverse. Um, cause it's like people from all sides telling me you're, you're wrong and bad. Um, but I think there's a real need and market and desire for people to have conversations in this messy middle without excusing any bad behavior and without pretending it doesn't matter, but recognizing that we as Americans should practice this, should yeah. practice talking to each other. So let's just start having conversations. That's the takeaway of the day. Mary Catherine, thanks for joining us on a... Um, a special episode of the Resilient Life podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So thanks for joining us today. You know, as we close out, um, we we talked and danced around this word unity a little bit. And, it, and I think there's a few different ways that we can unify. And again, they may sound basic in nature, but unity is basic. It's about how we come together. And I think we have to, number one, we have to stop waiting on a politician to fix our problems and recognize that each and every one of us has an obligation to be part of the solution. We are all responsible here and we are all obligated. Nobody skates here, no matter what your line of thinking is. So we're a pro part of the problem when we spread negative news, comments, memes, videos, etc. Think about that a little bit. Think about before you share something that's potentially divisive and ask yourself, am I part of the problem or am I sharing this because I think it's going to help us or me move forward? And like Mary Catherine said, start having conversations with people who have different views than you. Number two, Start serving others in the community in your own sphere of influence. You may feel like the problems we're seeing in our country are too big to take part in solving, so you start to feel sad or deflated. It's something that I was saying earlier. I feel deflated. How do I play a role? Well, I urge you 
to start serving where you can. Maybe that's just inside the walls of your home or it is in your local community. Maybe it's starting a town hall discussion amongst five of your neighbors to gain new perspective. Maybe it's just sitting down with your family and friends to talk through the importance of kindness and empathy towards others. Maybe it's writing your congressman or your congresswoman. It's better to be productive and and feel good about your actions towards progress than wallowing and feeling bad about what's going on in our country. And number three, it's, it's looking for positivity and looking for what's going right in our country as opposed to what's going wrong. You know, right now our country is hurting and it needs some rebuilding. And like all wounds, it's not impossible to heal or come back from where we're at. But the onus is on every single one of us to start living differently. I strongly encourage you to look inside yourself, inside your home, inside your community, and figure out what you can do differently to start rebuilding our country. Don't wait for someone else to do it, or you're going to be waiting to the end of your life. The definition of resilience is the ability of a person, system, or organization to adjust or recover readily from illness, adversity, or major life changes. We have an incredible opportunity right now to exhibit resilience in real time because we can come back from this, but we have to work resilience like we would a muscle. And it starts with action. Living a truly resilient life means taking a step back and figuring out what you're going to do to be a part of the unity that our country needs right now. I thank you all for joining me today. I hope that this conversation was valuable. And I hope that we can all start to move forward and heal as a country together. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to The Resilient Life. Thank you.